name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. What makes an event newsworthy? Significance? Human interest? Perhaps shock factor? But how does that translate into stories about derivatives and broader financial markets? Sometimes it might be obvious. For example, the sudden collapse of crypto exchange FTX, revelations of billions of dollars in missing customer assets, and the subsequent arrest of founder Sam Bankman-Fried made headlines across the world. Or perhaps it's a financial market slant on a globally critical issue that affects us all, like climate change. Sometimes, though, events in the derivatives market can be complex, technical, and tough to follow for all but the most ardent derivatives enthusiasts, which I suspect includes a fair number of our listeners. In this episode, we'll be talking to two veteran financial journalists to find out how they go about covering this space, what they look for when writing their articles, producing their podcasts, or writing their blogs, and the stories they expect to cover in 2023. Here with me is ISDA's Chief Executive, Scott O'Malia. Now, Scott, this will be interesting, as normally it's you answering the questions from journalists, so it's a bit of a chance to get your own back. Well, we'll see about that. We're fortunate to be joined by two highly respected and experienced financial journalists, so I suspect they may have the edge on us as interviewers. We'll be talking to Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg News and co-host of Bloomberg's excellent Odd Lots podcast. We'll also be joined by Philip Stafford, digital finance news editor at the FT and former editor of the FT Trading Room. Terrific. It's a great way to kick us off for 2023. So let's begin. Tracy, Philip, thanks for joining us on The Swap. Now, you've both covered financial markets for many years as reporters, editors, bloggers, and podcasters. What makes a good story in this space and how do you go about getting your information? And as a follow-up question, what topics do you expect to be looking at in 2023? Tracy, can I start with you for this one? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. In terms of what makes a good story, I do think finance and markets journalism is a little bit different to other types of journalism. So one of the things that I really enjoy is, I guess, a lively debate. And I like writing those stories in markets because often you see one person thinks this, the other person thinks that. Who's going to be correct in 2023 or beyond? I really enjoy getting into those types of discussions. And from that perspective, I think financial journalism is, I guess, a bit more theoretical perhaps than other types of journalism. But the other thing that makes a really good story is the personalities involved And if you think about an argument or a discussion or a hypothesis, someone is always winning, someone is always losing in financial markets, and getting into that sort of human experience of it, I find to be absolutely fascinating. In terms of what I'm looking at for 2023... Obviously, inflation is still a dominant story in financial markets. We have seen some of the original pandemic-era disruptions start to fade away. So, for instance, we've seen freight rates start to come down. We've seen other types of commodities start to turn. Lumber prices are back down to their pre-COVID levels. They were one of the first things that went shooting up. So it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not this is a turning point in inflation. On the other hand, we've heard from central banks that they're really focused on services ex-housing prices at the moment. And we are also still very concerned about the bullwhip effect. 
or this idea that you might still have companies sort of overreacting to small changes in end user demand. So I think inflation is going to be still a massive open question in 2023. And then the one other thing I would say is China. Has to be China. Scott knows that I spent some time in Hong Kong before moving back to the U.S. China has been on a wild ride for the past few years. And now it seems like they're reversing a lot of the pandemic era crackdowns. So not just COVID level restrictions, but also starting to ease up on some of the restrictions on the property sector, consumer technology, things like that. It's going to be really interesting to see how far they are willing to stimulate the economy in 2023. Okay, so China, inflation. Philip, what would you add to that list for 2023? Okay, many thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. In addition to you know what makes a good story, it's the age-old question, really. It's one thing that I don't think any of us can easily digest down to a simple magic formula. People, as Tracy mentioned, big numbers, something quirky, something unusual. Sometimes it's, it's very difficult to know what is actually going to land very well. It's funny, I mean, you know, going back years ago, before the, the internet really got going, I mean, it, it was a bit of an art and, uh, you know, hoping to work out what your readers were interested in. You had a pretty good idea. But, you know, with, with the advent of reader engagement, we can track fairly well what people are interested in. We can't actually track what each individual reader is interested in. We don't know anything about that, just to clarify. But even then, even now, you know, it, it's still a bit of an art. I've done stories, probably Tracy has as well. You think we've worked extremely hard on them and they, they kind of fall flat. And ones that you think a bit more perfunctory end up going a lot further than you expected them to. So what interests readers is something that you're always gauging, testing out, and you're constantly being surprised by it. And I don't think there'll be any, this year will be any change. As to what we're looking at, certainly starting off, as Tracy mentioned, inflation, and especially in the US, in Europe, China is clearly another big issue. As some of us have found out, you know, COVID hasn't really gone away completely. And, you know, China has still got a need to open up and, and stimulate its economy. Clearly, the, and one of the other issues, I mean, having dominated last year, will be to what extent the issue in Ukraine will get resolved. And if not, you know, particularly in Europe, how the energy markets will begin to react to that. We seem to have had a, a little bit of a, a fortune in that the winter has been pretty mild so far. Never rule out that it, it will plunge. But who knows? I mean, and if we get another uh, year of record temperatures in Europe like we did last year, then there will clearly be impacts on that. And see how the European Union, for example, will react to that, whether it's very uneasy consensus, which it's, it's kind of got to right now, will will hold. And if not, then the impact on on energy and throughout the entire uh, global market will, I'm sure, will play out. You mentioned some of the figures that you have at your fingertips now to analyse how readers are engaging with your stories. What stories have you written over the past six months or so that have really seemed to have captured the imagination of readers? What's been popular? So it won't surprise anyone to, to learn that the crypto implosion has just, you cannot write enough about that and for readers to lap up, FTX in particular, but there's some of the other stories as well. But for a while, I think we must have gone through about 30 odd consecutive days writing about FTX and every single one of them was a massive, was a massive story and you know readers couldn't get enough of it. That will, I should have probably have mentioned that as well as something that's likely to continue into 2023 is you know, what's left of the crypto market. 
Well, Philip, let's pick it up there. You became the digital finance news editor at the FT last year, and just as the crypto winner evolved to the crypto Armageddon with the collapse of FTX. You mentioned you've been covering this nonstop since the story broke. How do you see the crypto market developing from here? I mean, they've kind of reached somewhat of a bottom, or maybe not. What do you think? Well, you've always learned you've learned that what you think of the bottom is you know there's still further to fall. I, there's probably more fallout to come. I think there's there's probably a couple of high profile names that it's a question of when rather than if. And the question is, well, what is left? There's some talk at the moment about you know the the technology underneath it all having value, but again, it comes back to the central issue, which has always been, well, what value? What utility? There are no use cases. Of, of any kind at the moment. And some of the more high-profile cases that have been used by more traditional corporations haven't really gone anywhere either. It's Progress is glacial. In terms of the some of the tokens themselves, again, there's no cash inflow that's attached to them. They're still just used pretty much for speculation. And I mean, there's an argument that, well, that is its utility. Well, it is, I guess, but I don't think it's going to go anywhere because there is an awful lot of belief. It's it's more than just a you know a financial instrument. It's a, an article of faith. It's a cultural movement. There's a you know what you might call this uh, sunk cost fallacy lived in there, and those things die hard. So it's not going anywhere just yet. But the fundamental issues of what's the point of this are as valid now as they ever were. Yeah. Tracy, you've covered this topic very well on your podcast, Odd Lots. You had FTX CEO Sam Bankman fried as a guest and a little less than a year ago. In fact, I can remember where I was actually listening to that. It was on my commute going into the <laughs> office when he made his description of yield farming in that episode, and it was likened to a Ponzi scheme, which he didn't deny. So what's your take on the FTX implosion and, and on Sam's yield farming description yeah, that was kind of a viral moment from Odd Lots. I mean, look, we were podcasting all, gold. Yeah, we were all in the room when he was asked to describe yield farming to Bloomberg columnist Matt Levine, and we all kind of expected him to give a standard crypto answer, which is, you know, it's this complicated thing and you're borrowing and lending out all these different tokens and that's how the extra yield is generated. But instead, he used this analogy of it's basically a magic box and someone puts money into the box and more money comes out of it and then more people put money into it and more money comes out. And you can imagine what that sounds like. And in fact, Matt Levine called him out on it and said, this sounds exactly like a Ponzi. At no point in your description did you actually mention a use case for this technology, to Philip's point earlier. Now, we were all very surprised when that happened. Sam sort of said the quiet part out loud. We wrote up his comments. We actually made the article free to read at Bloomberg. Normally, our content is subscriber only. We made this one free as a public service to people who might be interested in the space. Everyone was pretty shocked at the time. I think one of the under-radar comments from that interview actually had to do with venture capital as well. And Sam was quite critical of venture capitalists and some of the uh, investors out in San Francisco. And so you just had this weird moment where he was kind of criticizing his own backers, also lifting the lid on the magic, so to speak, behind yield farming. And I think it was just a really toxic mix for his business model. Now, in terms of the collapse, what was really surprising, you know, 
again, we were shocked when he made those comments, basically because he said the quiet part out loud in a public forum. But I was doubly shocked to discover, you know, a few months later that he was actually describing FTX's own business model, this idea that you create a token out of thin air. And if enough people put money into it, or if you can push the price of these tokens up high enough, you can actually use them as collateral to secure additional financing. He described that on the podcast. It turns out that's exactly what FTX was doing with its own tokens. I don't think we've ever had a situation like this before where someone like actually went on an interview and kind of described their own fraud in broad strokes. So where do you see this? Philip thought that maybe we haven't reached the bottom. What's your perspective on that? I mean, I would agree with Philip. There's still further to go. There's a lot of speculation at the moment about Binance. There's obviously continued speculation about Tether. And I think we saw, you know, with a company like FTX and Alameda, these were two entities that were broadly thought to be best in class for the crypto space. And I'm talking relatively here. They collapsed very quickly. I mean, FTX was gone within a week, and it's not out of the question that you could see a similar dynamic with other players in the space. Now, crypto wasn't the only big story of 2022. We also experienced a crisis in the UK pensions market when a sharp rise in UK guilt yields left those pension schemes pursuing liability-driven investment strategies, facing huge margin calls on their derivatives positions, forcing them to sell gilts to raise cash. How do you go about unpacking these kind of complex technical topics and make them accessible to your audience? Philip, let's start with you on this one. Good question. It is technical. At the heart of, of what went on with the issue you described was the fact that it was a derivative and a derivative trading strategy. And there's something about the word derivatives that seems to sort of scare people. I was kind of put it down to the US investor uh, Warren Buffett describing them as weapons of mass destruction, which was a very colorful phrase, not wrong, not right. But it, it sort of stuck, and people just have this natural aversion to understanding them. Maybe it's because you only actually use a, you know, put up a fraction of the total, and, and there are, there's one there's a winner and there's a loser. Whereas you know, if you buy a security, it goes up, it goes down, or you get your regular payment. This slight seesaw effect, that complexity, and in the sense that if one side is going up and the other side is going down, and that there's margin payments, it forms this natural barrier that doesn't make it easy to immediately explain it. This is where a little bit of experience comes in that you know that Tracy and I have gotten. I think we've probably seen more of these blow-ups than we care to mention. So that you, you begin to understand the mechanism of how it works. There's a, a certain element of in, in journalism that you're having to really to be able to understand something and then to be able to simplify it. And then to the point where you understand it and then simplify it again so that the reader can understand it. But at, at the heart, you, you, I think you have to just kind of remember what the relationships are, what the incentives are, and the way that the money moves. And in the case of, of the LDI issue in the UK, I think you know a lot of people kind of forgot that they were derivatives and, and that therefore you do need some money as backup because that's just the nature of the game. And I think some people thought you could actually play in, in this market without actually having any sort of money to back it up. And, and that, that's never going to be a long-term strategy. Even if you know nobody was actually going to predict, could easily have predicted what was going to happen in the UK thanks to the, the Chancellor and, and the, the then Prime Minister. Tracy, how do you approach these kind of complex topics and how do you get them past your editor? <laughs> and now you're assuming that I'm being edited. Um, no, okay. 
There is a vibrant debate in financial journalism about the degree to which you need to make complex content accessible. And there is a time and a place for simplification. You know, if you're writing a story about a derivatives blow up on the front page, you are probably not going to go into excruciating detail about how all of this works. Instead, you're going to talk about, you know, this is kind of what happened and this is what it means. This is the impact. However, I do think with the advent of digital journalism, where you basically have infinite space to tell these stories, and also with the podcast, where we have the space to hold in-depth conversations, I think the readers and the consumers of this content are telling you that they want nuance and they want detail. If someone is downloading an episode on a pensions blow up and they want to hear more about LDI strategies, they are willing to give you time to do that. And so one of the great things I have found in digital journalism is like, yes, you can do the quick hit, you know, here's 250 words about what just happened and broadly what it means, but then follow up with, you know, here are 2000 words about exactly how this worked. And here is a 60-minute discussion with someone who's incredibly smart on this topic in which we discuss everything that just happened. And again, like the great thing about doing those is that you are often learning along with the reader or the listener. So you can start with the basic questions and say, you know, what is this strategy? What are the pensions trying to accomplish? And then move into more detail. And that is one of the benefits of the digital slash podcast format. So in my mind, sometimes people want a quick hit. They want that simplicity, but they also want to learn and they want as much detail really as you're willing to give them. Well, let's pick up a little bit where Philip left off in the leverage question and some of these events that we've been witnessing in liquidity crisis and give the readers what they want, so to speak, at a new level of detail. We've had the LDI crisis, right, where we had a liquidity crisis. We had the March 2020 dash for cash in which the pandemic was declared and everybody kind of pulled out cash out of the market. And now regulators have kind of come full circle and looked at these things and said, all right, what do we do about this? We're now the lender of last resort in bailing out certain markets during the liquidity crisis. You know, we've kind of gone from a thinking about markets in terms of a bilateral exposure, counterparty credit risk, to now we have liquidity crisis in a couple of these recent events. And there's things like Archegos, and there's also some of these, like the energy crisis precipitated by the Russian invasion. You now have massive requirements for margin, creating also different shocks. We're looking at the new challenges the market's facing. They're not the same. They're all kind of precipitated by a different cause, and yet the outcomes are a bit the same. You know, governments are kind of stepping in to uh, provide assistance, whether, you know, margin relief or just market liquidity. It feels like, you know, because regulators have put priorities on this, there have been several reports they've published, this will be a big focus in 2023. How are you approaching this story, if at all? Philip, maybe come to you or? Yeah, it's a story that we're going to devote a fair amount of time to this year, I would imagine. As you say, that there have been a couple of, uh, of episodes in the last couple of years I'd almost put the the nickel crisis at the LME in there as well. Partly, you know, there's a response to unexpected external stimuli in March 2020 or the the Russian invasion. You've also got something that happened last year, which we haven't seen for a decade, which was an extremely rapid rise in interest rates. What this role focuses on really is is the the architecture of of the post. 2008 financial crisis world. And this is what the regulators wanted. And yet we've been living in this strange unreality for the past 
13 years or so in which interest rates have been pretty much on the floor and, and when they have shown any sign that they're going to rise, usually the market has taken fright and central bankers listen. And you thought, well, we can't go an awful lot lower. And then the pandemic came along and it turned out we could. We've seen it it stimulate all sorts of investments, very speculative stuff. And then the taps were very, very suddenly turned off. And what we've had in the last probably year or so, more than any time, is, is, is a really good active stress test of this post-2008 world. And I think it's probably, you know, of, of lessons learned. And this is where I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, to what extent they do feel as if, if they're comfortable with what they made. It seems quite a long time ago now, you know, in that 2008 period when, you know, things were, you know, exploding and, you know, things would pop up all the time and nobody knew where they'd come from until they were there and in your face. And I think that is primarily what uh, regulators, governments, you know, policymakers want to avoid. And I think that, you know, while there's been a lot of liquidity crises, plural, you know, I think to some extent they have been much more manageable. It hasn't required the same sort of eye-catching taxpayer bailout that you know that the banks required maybe it just feels anecdotal but it seems to me as if regulators have said do you know what i'm there's little changes we can make here and there but broadly i'm actually quite happy with the setup we have now now tracy the odd lots podcast doesn't shy away from market structure issues is this something you, <laughs> you guys are going to be looking at in some detail in 2023 yeah, for sure it's on our radar. And I think to some extent you're right and Philip's right as well in, in the sense that we haven't really appreciated everything that's happened since 2020. I don't th think anyone's really had a chance to pause and sort of catch their breath and think like, what did the treasury route of March of 2020 really expose about the system? And what does the Fed's corporate bond buying program actually mean for the market? Has it forever changed the way people think about credit risk? My opinion is yes. And we haven't really stopped to appreciate that. That said, one thing I certainly learned from 2020 was that if a problem can be solved with money, it's probably not that big a problem. And, you know, I think we really saw that. Like we had markets on the verge. We had financial stress in the system. The Fed came in and other central banks around the world came in and supported the markets in various ways. We had a very sharp recovery after that. We can talk about whether or not it's left a lasting mark on the financial system. I'm pretty sure it did. But the problem was resolved. And if we had another big crisis, I would expect to see something pretty similar from the central banks. In my mind, the really interesting questions now are the things that can't be solved through central bank action or by opening the spigots of credit. And that's stuff like energy security, food security, infrastructure. I think to some extent, those questions are probably more dominant for us at the moment than financial risk. Well, that's a great segue to the next question. In the course of your reporting and podcasting, you speak regularly to senior executives of companies and financial institutions about the decisions they've made regarding carbon emissions and net zero. This is a topic that many firms have embraced. More regulatory direction is, is coming, particularly out of Europe and some disclosures out of the SEC in the U.S. How seriously do you think the commitments are being taken by corporations and how do you expect them, they will impact the financial markets going forward? Let's start with Tracy on that one. Sure. I 
I'm thinking, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I am going to, you know what, I'll just defer to, there was a paper recently, a Fed working paper about the big banks commitment to green energy and green financing. And it said very politely that there had been some progress, but a lot more needed to be done. So in order to fund the green revolution, for instance, we are way, way off from what we need in order to do that. I think an overarching issue with ESG is just that we haven't really decided what we're trying to accomplish with it. You know, is it to actually direct more money into green projects? Is it a way for companies just to signal that they have, you know, green credentials or green thoughts? Are we syncing it up between Europe and the U.S. in a way that doesn't completely mess with the entire ecosystem of energy? And there was one example that I saw of that. It was a few years ago, and so it might be out of date, but it was a credit analyst talking about because American investors didn't care about ESG as much as European investors. They had pushed down the cost of Exxon's financing so much that it was now economical for Exxon to go out and buy like a European energy major where investors cared about ESG. So those are the kind of skewed incentives that you do not want to be creating when you're trying to design a system that is pushing the world towards more green energy. So those are like my major criticisms of ESG and green. Like one, we are not doing enough. There's a vibrant debate about whether or not private markets should be doing this versus governments. I tend to think that governments have the lowest cost of capital and probably should be doing a lot of this. And then secondly, in the ESG space, we have never really stopped and defined exactly what we're trying to do here. And without that assessment and a sort of holistic consideration of ESG across different jurisdictions, it is not going to work as effectively as it could. Well, I think you're onto something, but I think private markets have a lot to offer. I mean, with just the scale of the financing that's necessary to get to the targets and the investments that are necessary, I think you have, it's got to be on all hands on deck. You've got to leverage the private markets as well as any government funding. I mean, if the IRA bill, the U.S. effort was $300 billion dollars, that's not even close to what we're going to need in the trillions of dollars over the next decades. So I think, you know, we got to figure out how we get the right incentives and alignment to make sure you unleash, including maybe pricing externalities like emissions. Totally. Look, it has to be both, right? But I don't think the government can leave it up to private markets. Yeah, I think there's got to be some clarity. I mean, this is going to be regulatory driven. That's, you know, people have taken net zero commitments and that's fantastic. But they got to live up to them. That's one step. But the other bit is what, where are we going and how are we going to get there? And I think that does require some government intervention. Yep. Philip, how do you think about this topic? Largely along the lines that Tracy's uh, said, I'm very, very pessimistic and, and it grieves me actually that I think to some extent we're actually largely too late and that the planet should have been doing this you know, 15, 20 years ago. On the issue of whether it's, it should be government or, or private markets led, I mean, it, it probably has to be a matter of both. I mean, you try and then squeeze it down to something you know go to any, any capital city and you see these, these massive gas guzzlers, you know, four by fours on the streets. And you think, well, it's a mixture. Why aren't they banned? Or why is it a, a case of, that the company is, is still offering it? Because they're like at the heart of it, you know, it's, it's still there's um, customer demand is still there. And really, it's, you know, it's, it's a matter of, I don't think it's just a matter of just simply trying to find the right incentive, but also you know, we probably have to change the demand at, at the heart of it. 
of everything that, that we have and do, and for, you know, whether it's for, for plastics or oil or whatever, is still as as strong as it, it ever was. And so I don't think that there is an, an easy answer. It does inevitably have to be a mixture of both. I don't think... I think as the Fed has it, we're, we're doing stuff and I think people's commitments are genuine. I just don't think anywhere near fast enough. As far as the ESG issue goes, yeah, it, it's very chaotic. There are so many different indices all proclaiming that they, they are the best and more accurate. And then I know it's, it's well-intentioned, but it, it doesn't actually really resolve an awful lot. I think you know sometimes the, the E, the S and the G of, uh, of ESG can actually be in conflict, which adds to the, to the issues, you know, and I'm a little bit skeptical about, about you, know, you know to what extent that the um, the markets can really help. They will follow whatever the consumer demand is. I think ultimately, and then that is where the the, the change comes from. And, and it's just a hard thing to do. I get very pessimistic and very I, I depress myself when I think about it too hard. Well, to make you feel even worse, maybe we can talk about the energy prices. <laughs> and Europe, and Tracy touched on this, you, you, you think about energy transition, that's one thing, but energy security is an, an entirely different matter. And I don't think you can have a transition without a, a proper energy security. And so the spike in energy prices, particularly here in Europe, as a result of the Russian invasion, have affected businesses and consumers around the world. They're making decisions about this. You know, here in the UK, my my energy prices are going through the roof as a result of the decisions or, that were made or weren't made. But as a result, my energy prices are significantly higher. Do you think there's a risk that the renewed focus on energy security could derail the transition to a, a net zero? I mean, I think it's probably having a, a, a big impact here. Philip, maybe living on the front lines here in Europe and <laughs> paying the prices that you're paying? Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> God, again, this is going to be, uh, go back to what I said earlier, but this is one of the, the, the key issues of the year. It will be great to see the prices come down. There's no doubt about that. Because energy is a finite commodity, especially when uh, you're manufacturing in Russia, I don't know if you, you we're really going to see, get a, a resolution to something like that. And, you know, Tracy mentioned energy security being one of the big issues. I, again, I don't think we're going to get a, a resolution to that. You might start seeing some more interesting sort of diplomatic realignments that you may not have considered a few years ago as people have to transition to start thinking about energy security in ways that they hadn't previously. There was talk that you know, the US could start looking at, at Venezuela uh, as an alternative, which uh, you know, a few years ago that would have been considered a non-starter. But who knows? I mean, you know, maybe the EU and the UK might actually have to end up stop bickering and, and work together on this sort of thing. Because energy is such a heart of, of, of the modern global economy, how that, that will play out this year. I suspect that we will get to this point next year still with these same questions. Tracy, your thoughts? One of the first things I wrote in 2021 was a post with the headline, Get Ready for the Inflationary Pushback to ESG Investing. And, you know, that was pretty early on into the inflation surge. And since then, inflation has only gotten higher. And we have seen energy prices in Europe and also in the States. You know, I'm recording this from Connecticut in, in the Northeast in New England, where there's been a massive hike in electricity and heating oil prices. As things get more expensive, you are going to see more and more discussion of who is supposed to shoulder the costs. And I think it goes back to this idea of how do you design a resilient and holistic energy system. It's not enough to say, okay, we're all going to transition to green energy with the swipe of a pen and a few... Well, 
probably hundreds of trillions of dollars at this point. You really need to design a system that is not going to fail its end users. And if you don't do it, then you are going to get the, you know, a sort of one step forward, one step back process. And I'm just looking at a headline now. I think 2022 is supposed to be a year of record coal use for the world. I mean, that is going backwards in my mind, and that's because we haven't done enough to actually advance the system and design it in a way that makes it more resilient to these disruptions. And by the way, there's a good reason we haven't, right? Like no one was preparing for a system in which there was a global pandemic. No one necessarily was preparing for a system in which Russia invaded Ukraine and cut off all uh, the gas to Europe. And we can debate whether or not they should have probably should have. And I think there were some warnings that this was a possibility. But the incentives for building that sort of excess capacity into the system are minuscule, especially when we're talking about companies that are trying to eke out profits. I'd like to change tack and go back to something that Tracy said about the onset of digital journalism and how that's changed the way you write your stories. Now, journalism has obviously changed beyond recognition in the past 15 or 20 years with the transition from a more traditional print media to 24-7 online news and podcasting. Philip, you and I both started out at roughly the same time in the same place, and back then it was all about weekly print deadlines. The entire cycle of the week was focused on getting that issue to press on a Friday afternoon. Can you tell us how your job has evolved over the years as a result of these changes and the move towards digital journalism? Hugely. That's a trip down memory lane there, Nick. Hugely. I mean, it started off, I mean, when I joined DFT and, and it was just kind of getting into this thing called the internet and online news. And it was still very much a newspaper and had this, this small online presence and uh, you know it's completely flipped now it's everything is online and the newspaper is this sort of in the background you don't always notice it's there which is you know in 20 years it's huge i don't think we'll ever get rid of the paper by the way i think it's not only is it, it's, it's a great selling tool everybody knows what the the ft looks like and it's also an extremely well read and well bought thing at the weekend so i think that it'll stay but having said that you know the the world is, is very much changed because they say that everything has been based on the paper and then buying a newspaper. And I think we probably learned probably more around 2008 more than anything else that you know that is can be capricious and and you know while the the world fell apart all our purchases fell off a cliff and we'd all been going onto subscriptions and you know and then we really accelerated it from there and when you start making that switch and you had actually subscription based is is the way to go then you start totally rethinking the way that, that you actually work. On a personal level, you had the introduction of things like, first of all, Blackberries, and they're always on, you know, and so, which has both been both a blessing and a curse. And then, you know, with uh, online, again, a blessing and a curse is that you had infinite space. As Tracy mentioned, you can really get into into the into the full details of how something probably went wrong more than anything, you know. But it's endlessly fascinating. But there is something equally, really, really satisfying about writing for a finite space of a newspaper even when you're writing into a template online there's something you know in your head something quite different is happening even though it's more ephemeral it it still feels as if if it's been you know carved into stone i don't know why it does this so 
when you you have you switched to the digital world, Luna, we we got more digital than than paper readers probably about five six years ago. That's never going to change. You know, you start thinking about digital first, and then I think the next thing you know we we started doing was we start thinking about how we can actually. Instead of just filling the paper with, you know, filling the space with absolutely everything, is to, is to write the quality stuff. We don't have the resources to just write absolutely everything. So you've got to pick and choose what you go with. And if you're going to offer a subscription, you have to think about what people would want to pay for. People don't want to pay for small incremental stuff. You have to think about the quality, the way that you can add value to your readers to make it worth their while to pay for it. And Tracy, you've experienced a number of different facets of digital journalism, from blogging to TV to podcasting. How has your job changed and how does that affect how you approach stories? Sure. So I I think I might be the rare journalist who maybe started in digital media and then went into the newspaper. So Philip and I were colleagues on the Financial Times briefly, but I started hardcore finance and markets journalism in September 2008 when I joined FT Alphaville, which was the FT's finance and markets blog. And I have to say, one of the advantages of being on a blog at that time was it was really perfectly suited to the financial crisis of 08 because no one knew really what was going on. Everything was kind of new. So you had, let's just say you were on the same playing field as a lot of people who'd been covering finance for ages. You had room to sort of theorize about potential problems or where this could go. And also you had a time advantage. So you were able to get stuff out a lot faster than newspapers at a time when things were happening. I mean, I remember certain days, just every hour, there would be a new cataclysmic development for the financial system. And if you were trying to encapsulate all of that in a newspaper, it was incredibly difficult. And again, in 2008, 2009, I think FT Alphaville was kind of considered like the outcast of the Financial Times newsroom. We were just a bunch of like relatively young journalists writing a blog at a time when people, a lot of people didn't even know what a blog was. Since then, I would say, and I I don't mean to focus on the FT too much, but I did work there for a while. I think the FT really moved more towards Alphaville than Alphaville moved towards the FT. There was a recognition that getting stuff out quickly was valuable when people are reading things on on their phone and online. You, You want to get that information to them as quickly as possible. And there was also a recognition that You know, a blog format could allow you to discuss things in a way that maybe a traditional newspaper news story format didn't allow you to. Now, as Philip mentioned, I do think there are massive advantages to newspapers. I think they really instill discipline in your news judgment and make you think about what's most important. You know, every day an editor on a newspaper is going to have to wake up and decide what is the most important story in the world. What are we putting, you know, on our front page? above the fold, what do we really want to put like a mark on? And that's fantastic. But again, I spoke about this earlier. Consumers nowadays are just bombarded 
with content and they could fall down a massive rabbit hole and just spend all their time trying to catch up on everything that's out there. But when they come to you, they are signaling that they are willing to give you some of their time and we can decide what they want to spend their time on. So some people are going to want to read a newsletter that has like the most important headlines to their current job, but other people are really going to want to take a deep dive into something that interests them. And I think the advent of digital journalism really allows you to serve those different types of purposes and those different types of audiences. And that flexibility is what excites me about journalism now. And just going back to the idea of discipline. And I know Philip was talking about this earlier, that some of the best stories that you write tend not to be the ones that get most read. And that happens to me all the time. Like something that I spent 10 minutes on and just got out very quickly will often have like a multiple of readers compared to something that I spent two months on and I think is absolutely fantastic. But I think the way I try to handle it is I try to produce memorable journalism. So either it's memorable because you were the first to get to the topic, the first, you know, it was a scoop, you got to it first, people remember it because of that, and you did it quickly, got it out. Or it's memorable because it was unusual or original or really detailed and nuanced or it presented information in a new way, in a way that people hadn't thought of before. And I think if you can do that, like that's probably the best way to judge the success of your own stories rather than on just readership alone. And I still have people who come up to me and talk about like, for instance, the oil barrel story that I did a few years. I mean, I think it was seven years ago now and people still bring it up. In 2020, when oil prices went negative, it started trending again. It went viral for the second time. And so I think, you know, if you can produce that type of journalism that people remember, and when something else develops along those lines and they go, oh yeah, I remember reading a story about this, and they start bringing it up again, like, I think that that's a really good marker of of worthwhile and successful journalism. Now, for the final question, I want to ask all the journalists on this call, what brought them to financial journalism. Tracy, you mentioned Alphaville. Was that your first job? And why did you become a journalist? So my first job was actually at Bloomberg. I was an intern, a summer intern in London. And the reason I went to Bloomberg was very simple. They were one of the few media outlets that was actually paying interns at the time. And I needed money after university. And so I fell into it. I was covering airlines at a really interesting time. And to come full circle to the initial question, one of the things I loved about financial journalism was, you know, money kind of makes the world go round. And so it gives you a really good prism to consider individual incentives and motives. But also there's a tendency to think of markets as an abstract concept, but really you're talking about, you know, people and individual stories. And one person thinks this, the other person thinks that. Who's going to be right? This person's making money. This person's losing money. Who's going to win out? How are they going to shape the system in the future? And I found that way of looking at things very compelling. Interesting. Philip? Uh, When I left university, I I was an English teacher in Japan. I had briefly wondered about whether to become a teacher, but I, I really loved the experience, but I think I knew that I, I didn't actually want to do that. And journalism was one of those things that I'd always kind of 
had in the back of my mind, but I didn't know whether I'd actually have the ability or, or you know, the, the confidence to do. And I thought, what the hell, anyway? I sent off my CV to, I just think I just carpet bombed everybody. I had no experience whatsoever. And one of the people who got back to me was Bloomberg, who offered me an internship. The other great thing about Bloomberg was that they paid their interns. <laughs> as Tracy said. And so I thought, well, why not? And the one thing I didn't expect was to enjoy business journalism as much as I have. But I enjoy the pace of it and the intellectual interest to it when things we've both we've spoken about already. You start pull, pulling on one thread and, and, and a whole world begins to open up for you. And so I sort of say fell into it. It's probably a little bit unfair, but yeah, you, you say yes to things and, and they sometimes take you down pathways that you don't expect. And I'm very glad it did. Well, despite being a financial podcast, the journalism side of this is pretty interesting. You all play a very important role in, in our markets and communicating and, and intelligence. So we're grateful for your coverage and interest in the work we do and the issues we deal with. I think there's been a fascinating discussion and we can always talk about the next step of citizen journalists that are kind of out there in Substack and Discord and all these other kind of things and what they would value they bring and accuracy. But I think you both do a terrific job. So I appreciate the work that you do. That's about all we have time. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. It's nice to be asked questions for a change instead of asking the questions. It's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of pleasure. Thanks to everybody. So. There you have it, Scott. Crypto and the fallout from FTX will clearly continue to be a big issue for the press going into 2023. Tracy and Philip also highlighted a couple of other issues they expect to be looking at. Inflation, China, energy security, ESG. How does that tally with ISDA's area of focus? Perhaps not surprisingly, there is a fair amount of crossover. We've talked quite a bit about the collapse of FTX from our perspective, we think this highlights the importance of having a clear legal framework that helps clarify the rights and obligations of each counterparty in the event of a default. We'll soon be publishing definitions for certain OTC crypto derivatives, as well as papers on netting, collateral, and bankruptcy protections to help bring more clarity to this market and help optimize the use of DLT platforms. We also talked about climate change and ESG. We're, of course, doing a lot of work in that area as well, and we recently published some new industry documentation for the trading of verified carbon credits, or VCCs, as part of a broad and continuing effort to support the transition to a green economy. The interesting conversation we had today around non-bank financial intermediation will also be a, a focus, not only for ISDA, but regulators. They're looking at margin practices, leverage, liquidity supply, ISDA could potentially feed into this work in several areas, including our analysis on margin models and industry solutions on collateral operations. I think that's an area where much more work needs to be done to bring automation and efficiency. And then finally, one that Tracy and Philip didn't mention is regulatory reporting. As regulatory reporting rules are amended across various jurisdictions, we'll be rolling out our own digital regulatory reporting solutions that firms can either use directly as the basis for their implementation or to check their own understanding of the rules that are in line with the industry consensus. We launched the DRR for the CFTC rewrite of its reporting rules at the end of last year, and we'll look to extend the other reporting rules once they've been amended. Okay, great. There's clearly a lot going on, but we're out of time for this episode. Just a reminder that there are plenty of resources on all of the issues that Scott mentioned on the ISDA website. We'll also be exploring those topics in depth in forthcoming episodes, so please do keep your eyes peeled for those. 
that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.